think about the following. If you, as a middle-aged man, figure out that you're never going to have a partner, you're never going to have children, you're never going to have any opportunity for progeny of any kind, the only answer that a state-run enterprise can solve at a governmental level is addict these people to things, right? Get them to spend all of their wealth and all of their inherited wealth, because remember, they won't have anybody to pass it on to. So they're going to blow it all in this generation. 86 million consumers who are men, who are middle-aged men who are going to do what? They're going to buy cars. They're going to buy watches. They're going to buy alcohol. They're going to buy digital entertainment, including massive amounts of digital pornography, all sorts of other things. That's what they're going to do. And if you're going to create an environment where you need to somehow mysteriously get that population to be pacified. Wouldn't it be interesting if you could participate in a global exercise called a, an alleged pandemic? There are so many supplements out there, it's confusing what's best for optimizing your health. Beyond getting your basic nutrition, if there's one vital ingredient for optimal health, it's carbon 60. Why? Because Carbon 60 is the world's most effective supplement at reducing inflammation and increasing longevity. Inflammation is a major contributing factor of almost all disease, including Alzheimer's, asthma, cancer, heart disease, obesity, and COVID vaccine injury. If you are serious about your health, try Carbon 60. Be careful though, not all Carbon 60 supplements are equal. I recommend Carbon 60 by Live Longer Labs, the scientists who first brought you Carbon 60 that was suitable for human consumption. They were also first to bring you Carbon 60 in pill form, first to incorporate black seed oil and curcumin, and first to incorporate frequency technology that gives you full spectrum health. You can be confident that you will be buying the absolute best. Buy or learn more with the link below or go to sarahwessel.com under shop. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have Dr. David Martin coming back to the program. He has been explosive lately. He did a presentation in front of the EU Parliament, and that thing went viral around the world. While we had a blackout on it in the United States, it went viral. The people, they broadcasted it in India and in China and all of uh, Africa and South America and all these people saw it. And so billions of people saw it while here there was a complete media blackout of what was being said and what other people in other countries are talking about. So I wanted to have him on to talk about that. His friend, David Lopez, who was on the show a few weeks ago, said, Sarah, you really need to get him on. And he told me all about what was going on in the European parliament. And I, and I said, okay, yeah, I got to find out why are they blacking them out and what's going on. And so we have a really, this is a really good conversation. And I, you, I think you'll be able to see the uh, intellectual level of this is pretty high. He's a pretty smart guy. Whether you believe the same things he says or not, it's important that we have these conversations and he doesn't hold back. So that's a good thing. So before I get into this conversation, I wanted to share with you the Restore Patch. I've just been, it's a new product that I'm carrying. It's the same guys that do the Carbon 60 Live Longer Labs technology, working with Pure Bella Vita. And they, you know, they're so good with frequency. They infuse it in their um, C60, which gives you a whole 360 health because it has all the vitamin, vitamins and minerals that you need 
built into the carbon 60 plus carbon 60 plus uh, curcumin plus it's in black seed oil, which is the best oil period. If you look it up, it has remarkable uh, healing properties. And so C60 for everything it has, the carbon 60 that I sell is actually pretty inexpensive. That being said, they have these restore patches now to help people with anxiety, PTSD. And what it does is it, it's infused with frequency. So it helps rewire your brain. And so they're working with vet veteran groups and doctors and chiropractors around the country to really help people get better from anxiety and PTSD and rewiring their brain. It's amazing. And so, and I know anxiety is extremely high right now I know with myself. So I just highly recommend that you try these if it's something that you are struggling with, because the last thing you want to do is get on one of those pharmaceutical drugs that screws with your mind that you're stuck with for the rest of your life that really zaps you of energy. You want to get something that'll work with your body and heal. So anyways, I have the link below for that. You can always go to sarahwestell.com under shop and find all those amazing things as well. So let's get into this really good conversation I have with Dr. David Martin. Hi, David. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, Sarah. Lovely to be here. I wanted to talk to you because uh, I have been, you know, your friend, David Lopez, who came on my show a while ago, just says, Sarah, you got to talk to him again. And so I, I, he's right. I needed to talk to you again. You had something going on in the European parliament that was pretty much blacked out across the United States, but went viral around the world, like billions of views. These other yeah. countries are really taking interest in it. And what happened at the European parliament can you talk about that? Because Americans have no clue that this actually is occurring and the rest of the world is taking an interest in this. Well, it was funny. I, I actually had somebody come up to me in a hotel in New York a couple of weeks ago and go, oh, my God, are you David Martin? And I said, yes. And they said, you know, you're a TikTok influencer. And I said, no. And they said, well, your European speech is on TikTok and there's 800 million views on TikTok. Um, no idea. I, I never knew I was on TikTok. So, um, <laughs> but, but listen, I mean, the, the thing is, as, as a lot of people know, since, you know, 2002, I've been briefing the world on the bioweapons program that was developed around COVID. And while a lot of people are talking about a pandemic and they're talking about shots and they're talking about face masks and they're talking about all that kind of thing, which, you know, in, in the instant moment is probably an important conversation to be having. The deeper conversation that we're not having is that this was a criminal conspiracy that was put in motion many, many years ago. I've been I've been briefing intelligence and law enforcement agencies on this for over two decades. And so, you know, when you have a conversation where you take the the story out of the propaganda version of the story, which is this is SARS-CoV-2, this is COVID-19, this is shots, this is that, this is something else. And when you give people the information that this was a slow moving train wreck that started, you know, you can easily argue uh, in the 1950s, which is what I laid out in the um, in the European Parliament speech. All of a sudden, it doesn't sound like an overnight threat. It doesn't sound like this was something where you know, some bizarre thing happened in a lab in China. It, it actually sounds like the United States has been planning to get the public to accept this addiction to medical countermeasures for a very long time. And what we failed to do with anthrax, which 
you know, people forget in 2001, the Department of Defense released anthrax to the U.S. so that we could get the PREP Act. Um, you know, what we failed to learn from anthrax, we have failed to learn from SARS-CoV-2. And so I just laid all of that out uh, in 21 minutes, and it was the 21 minutes that has been heard, broadcast, shared, uh, propagated all over the world. It's pretty amazing. So what, and that's just what you talked about in the European Parliament. You just talked about the fact that all this has happened. Because I know you came on my show years ago and we talked about these things. And for me, it was a slow moving train wreck from the beginning. It's just been so yeah. painfully, you know, orchestrated and just all this happening. But the rest of the world is aware of this, it sounds like. And, and yeah. they broadcasted this all over India and China and other yep. countries and it makes they want people to think that China is responsible for this. But why would China broadcast this all over their country if they weren't, you know, if they weren't in on it? Well, if you listen to the Carter Center, which is the uh, liberal hotbed of thought leadership in Atlanta, Georgia, um, they'll tell you that it's because I'm anti-American, uh, which I find to be bordering on comical given how horrifically anti-american the left has become and the carter center specifically has advocated so somehow or another um my my uh, position which says that the illegal operations that have been propagated in the united states under the auspices of darpa under the auspices of the department of defense and others those illegal acts actually are things that the public should know about. We should be aware of that. In a democracy, we should not have our resources, our treasure as a nation, our reputation as a nation, besmirched by people who actually are willing to break the laws here in the United States and around the world. And when you have an American who actually says there are people in America doing bad things, that's a rare voice for the world to hear. And so it actually in many respects, propagated because there was a very unique conversation being had, which is that the world, not unlike Nuremberg in 1947 and 1948, the world doesn't actually want biological weapons programs. That's not what the citizens of any country want. Now, are there despotic leaders and are there corrupt individuals in countries that want to have weapons of destruction for all manner of evil? The answer is, of course, yes, but the people of the world don't want that. And I think in many respects, Sarah, there was a breath of fresh air that somebody was actually kind of scratching the itch that's, I think, in the back of a lot of people's minds where people know something is so wrong. You know, this whole nonsense about the injections were 100% effective, and now, and now here we are, you know, six or seven injections later, and they're saying that maybe they're 30% effective as a booster to maybe reduce infection, maybe. You know, people know that they've been lied to. People know that there has been a concerted effort to do something, but I think a vast majority of people still are sitting there going, yeah, but but why would people do that? And so I think part of the thing that we need to do is help scratch the itch of why don't we listen to the criminals in their own words? Why don't we review the facts that are absolutely unequivocally facts. And I think that the presentation that I made happened to scratch that itch for you know billions of people around the world, which is a good thing to do so that people stop feeling like maybe, maybe they're just foolish, maybe they're alone, maybe they're the only one that thinks that there's something wrong. And I think we all benefit 
from recognizing that if our intuition is telling us something is fundamentally wrong, we actually need to be able to trust that intuition and look for and ultimately find the information that gives validation to what we know with certainty is in fact a problem. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about who's behind this, because I, I, in my research, while the United States is clearly involved, I don't think we're the only players, because when you look at the World Economic Forum and the fact that all these leaders operated in unison, I, I find it hard to believe that we're the only ones that did well, so this. I think we need, yeah, so I think we need to separate the world into there's the architects and then there's the implementers. And when it comes to the implementation, you're exactly right. The implementation was unambiguously the uh, the world stage. And it was largely, as you point out, the, you know, the young leadership out of the World Economic Forum, the YPOs and the WPOs and that crowd. So yes, and in terms of the implementation of the program, there's no question it was a global effort. But we need to be very precise on the architects because the architects undoubtedly, and there's no zero question in anybody's mind, that the architects were largely the United States and the United Kingdom. And this goes back, by the way, to the 1913 establishment of what became in the 1940s, the World Health Organization. But if you go back and you look, who was that? That was the Wellcome Trust out of the UK. That was the Rockefeller Foundation here in the United States. And while we like to point at all of the bad guys, whether that's the Bill Gateses or the Anthony Fauci's or the Tedros's in, in the World Health Organization or Klaus Schwab at World Economic Forum or even the Communist Party of China, which by the way, was not really a real power broker until 1971 when the United States made it what it is. So, yeah. you know, even though we can sit back and go, well, they're bad actors. Um, I don't know. If you look at the entirety of human history from 1971 until 1987, when the United States government made the Communist Party what it is in China. I mean, that was not China coming up with this idea. That, that was the United States working very hard to make sure China did not become a satellite of the Soviet Union. And that's why we did it. So let's call a spade a spade. I'm not saying somebody did a bad thing or a good thing. I'm simply saying we made China what it is. We put our industries in China. We put our financial um, treasuries in China. We did that. If we hadn't done that, China would still be probably a third world nation. So I like to remind people who are not scholars of history that we can sit here and pretend like somehow or another this was an innocent you know, byproduct of despotic leadership. But the fact of the matter is there has been a planned and orchestrated program where the funding, the direction, and the architecture of this program, without any question, are largely U.S. and U.K. affiliated financial institutions, and largely Rockefeller Foundation, now the Gates Foundation, and the Wellcome Trust. And if you look at the architecture and the people who actually pulled off the what I call the coup of the globe with COVID-19, the Wellcome Trust is front and center. Because remember, Jeremy Farrer was the glue. He was the director of the Wellcome Trust, and he was the glue that held together the entire terror campaign on the European side for the same terror campaign that Gates and Fauci and Barrick and Daszak were doing on our side. So the, the facts are unambiguous. And when we try to go to the next level of your question, which is the why, well, the answer is they already told you why. 
they actually said that this was about a financial profit. This was picking the pocket of treasuries around the world. And if you look at the fact that Pfizer in its first year of distributing its injection had a $100 billion revenue year, which is more than twice what they legitimately had in any other lifetime. And if you look at who profited from that, it turns out that the very organizations that orchestrated the terror campaign were the ones that pocketed the money. So, you know, I think good people, well-meaning people, including you and me, where we sit there going, was it really that simple? Like, did the bank robber just rob a bank? The answer is yes, that's what they did. Now, when we go to the motivations, which is the other half of your question, there is without question since 1952, a stated objective of the World Health Organization, which is population reduction. So there's a nefarious underbelly to this thing. Let's be really clear. But did a bunch of just rich sociopaths get richer? Absolutely. Okay. Well, that is pretty clear. A lot of people think that the uh, crown or Europe, England, they control pretty much the United States and we never really get, we're, are free from them. And there yeah. was, a, yeah, that we still are under their control. And so, the, you know, the city of London and Wall Street are more uh, in cahoots than we realize. Well, you know, I have a film, American Revolution, Sarah, that had during COVID was was supposed to be released and then theaters shut down. But um, a lot of people have seen it. It's been seen by several hundred thousand people across the country and around the world. And in that, I actually do the unauthorized kind of historical economic biography of the United States. And in that film, I talk about the fact that if we go back and we look at the establishment of the British East India Company in 1604, which is where all of this nonsense in the current expression of the craziness we're living in started. We realized that the Virginia Company, which was you know, kind of the namesake of where I'm living now, um, the Massachusetts Company and the Hudson Bay Company were chartered specifically so that exactly to your point, we could pretend this illusion that somehow we were free and independent, but let's stop fooling ourselves. The fact of the matter is the same year that we signed a Declaration of Independence in the United States in 1776, Adam Smith also published The Wealth of Nations, which was the book that laid out the plan for the United States of America to be essentially the first experiment of what I refer to in the movie as a nation built on a corporation. This was not land of the free, home of the brave nonsense. I mean, we like to say that. We like to put flags up. We like to celebrate the, the 4th of July and all this kind of nonsense. But ask yourself, why is it that the cessation of conflicts was not signed in the United States? If you're a victor, you know where you sign the ends of conflicts? You sign them in the victor's home territory. That's where you sign them. But that's not where this was signed. And it wasn't even signed in the United Kingdom. The treaty that ended the conflict between the United States and the United Kingdom allegedly was signed in Ghent in 1816 or 1817. Now, why would we pick a neutral banking and corporate hub to sign the treaty, which is the official end of conflict between the United Kingdom and the United States? And the fact of the matter is because we didn't sign the end of conflict. What we agreed to was the separation of corporate interests 
for the Hudson Bay Company and the other companies of North America. This was not the story we're told in history books. And as much as people want to delude themselves into believing things, go back and look at the actual history. And the history says that Great Britain ran out of money to keep the fight going, which is absolutely true. But they were also fighting the French at the time. And it turns out that you can't fight a multi-front war on the water when you've got an inferior navy on both fronts. And so what we got was kind of a detente. But remember that the War of 1812 was still part of the revolution. And we didn't win it. We didn't lose it. What we did was we settled it. And when we settle a war, you don't actually have a victory at the end. You have a settlement. And unfortunately, that's what we've lived in. And Americans have lived under this illusion that because the flag is over our head, that works. But if you go back and ask yourself in 1944, when everybody got together at Bretton Woods to set up the financial systems that have run the world since 1944, the World Bank, the IMF, GATT, which became the World Trade Organization. If you go back and look at history, what you find out was it was Britain that dictated those terms, not America. If you've been paying attention, you know the global economy is transforming. The BRICS nations want to see the end of the dollar reserve currency, and many countries are joining their effort. The Western banking system is the most fragile it's been since 2008. The highly respected Weiss Research Group accurately provided advance warning on which banks are going to fail with 99.3% accuracy after the 2008 crisis. They are now predicting that a whopping 4,243 banks are vulnerable to failure and 1,210 of those banks face imminent failure. When this situation comes to pass, it will dwarf the 2008 banking crisis. The only asset that has historically weathered a storm this severe has been precious metals. It has never been a better time to buy gold and silver to protect your family. Contact Miles Franklin at info at milesfranklin.com. Tell them Sarah sent me and you will get the best service and the best prices on gold and silver in the country. That is a guarantee from them to me. Remember, info at milesfranklin.com. Tell them Sarah sent me. Do this now to protect your assets and the ones you love. Yeah, see, I think Britain has more control. I think that's what's falling is Britain is losing or they're shifting their base. But And this is what I want to talk to you about is Britain didn't have the resources and the the land mass to be able to control the world. So they wanted the United States as a satellite to be able to use for all their resources, yeah. right? To yeah. their their military and everything. So they used us to to complete their empire. And now it, are they moving it to the east or is there a war really between the east and the west? Well, I think there's probably a third front. And if you ever played risk, um, you, you know that the um, the biggest challenge is to hold Europe and the second biggest challenge is to hold the Pacific. And ironically, the Chinese are finding out really, really quickly that this Belt Road Initiative, which was their fantasy of reinstilling some you know, nostalgic you know, reference back to the Marco Polo trading routes of the Medici's, uh, it turns out that that's not working out so well for them. But if you go back and answer your question, you know, Ukraine was without a doubt a proxy war with respect to the expansion of NATO. And why would we want to expand NATO? Well, we'd want to expand it because, to your point, 
the threats are east of us. They're not, you know, we're, we're not worried about a Pacific threat. We're worried about the east movement of where our alleged concerns are. And so we want to have a counterweight to Mongolia, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kajikistan, and all the stands. And we want to have a counterweight to the expansion of the Belt Road Initiative across Asia. Now, we also have, and this is where it's more complicated, we also have a southern hemisphere that's going, how about not either one of you, right? How about not China? How about not Russia? And how about not the US and Europe? And it's not without surprise that we're starting to see African and South American countries starting to go, you know, maybe we could do this thing and we could become our own block. And so what have you seen recently? You've seen the Saudis and the Brazilians do their own bilateral agreements. You've seen, you know, the Saudis and other members of South America do their own bilateral agreements. And so your your point is really well taken because this is, we could argue that what we're watching is the final collapse of the Roman Empire, um, you know, because many, many people yep. would argue with historical accuracy that Britain was the last stand of the Roman Empire, and it was just too far away to collapse when the rest of South Southern Europe collapsed. And there's a lot of truth to that. But the fact is that if you look at most of our institutions, if you look at most of the ways we govern, if we look at most of the, even terms we use, senators, things like that, we we still are stuck in a Roman Empire that I think is probably either fully collapsed or about to fully collapse. Elon Musk made the point, I think, a day or two ago, where he actually said that he feels when he watches the sacking of Target stores in Philadelphia and he watches the gang robbers that are running into, you know, Rite Aid pharmacies and running into Targets and running into shopping malls and smashing and grabbing and running. You know, his analogy was he feels like he's watching the end of the Roman Empire. Well, I think he probably was righter than he meant to be right. Because I think to your point, Britain has long lost the plot. It does not have its influence anymore. The United States lost its moral authority a long time ago. And now we're living in this bizarre world where we genuinely have a vacuum of what is going to emerge next. So you think we're watching a vacuum go on. You don't think we're watching a a shift from one power base to the next. And what do you think about Klaus Schwab saying he wanted to move the, the East to, as our power base because the people are more easily controlled and they're, yeah. you know, what do you think about that? Well, so, so let's start with Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab is a sociopath Yep, and he will be recorded in history as such. There's no question. And so when one, examines the behavior of a sociopath, you need to tread very lightly because logical people and logic itself is not welcome in the mind of someone <laughs> who is certifiably yep. institutionally and diagnostically delusional. So does he want to have favoritism coming from Eastern despotic rulers? No question. That is an aspiration of anybody who actually wants to have influence and control over the population. But Klaus Schwab, let's remember, was nearly bankrupt several years ago, and he was bailed out by a number of people, but some of the people that bailed him out were in Australia. And not just anywhere in Australia, in Victoria, Australia. 
And everybody asks me, well, why did Victoria go off the rails so completely when it came to COVID? Like, that's where you saw, you know, women being trampled with horses. You saw people terrible. being drug out of their homes. You saw things that made the the SS in, in Germany look like, you know, the training grounds for these thugs that were going in and suppressing people all over Victoria. Well, it turns out that if you go back and look at any history, you find out that the Czech writers that kept Klaus Schwab alive are in Victoria. But people don't talk about that. They don't know that. The people who actually invested in and supported the World Economics Forum's reemergence are in, in Victoria and Melbourne, Australia. And therein lies the interesting observation, because is it really, and this is why I say a power vacuum, it's important, because is it really the movement of a power center, or is it possibly more insidious? Is it that we actually have a group of sociopaths who thrive on chaos? They don't really want anybody controlling them. They want the chaos because chaos is good for business. Chaos is good for manipulation. Chaos is good to reinstill the idea of police states and you know social scores and social credit and all the kinds of things that they like. And I'm not sure that they want power consolidated anywhere but in their own hands. Well, now, uh, Australia is a satellite of England as well. Oh, and 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 it also is 80 plus percent entirely dependent on China for its economy. So it's it may be a satellite, but I can guarantee you that every bit of the, quote, lucky country language that you hear when you're in Australia and, you know, having lived there in New South Wales and in Queensland and in in Victoria, I can I can tell you that you hear lucky country a lot. But if you look at where the luck is coming from. You know, they're digging themselves out of uh, iron and they're digging themselves out of coal and they're digging themselves out of a lot of things. But the counterparty in that is singular and it is China. Well, Nobody China's, else is actually in the game. Well, and China's benefiting. They're the largest trading partner with almost every country in the world yeah. right now. Yeah. So things are changing. We do have the United States has nine of the top, the lar- nine of the 10 largest companies in the world, but they're all big tech or big tech supporters. So that explains the fascism that we're seeing in big tech. Yeah. And we also know that where are all of those companies reliant on with respect to the infrastructure that they sell their wares upon? And that is all China. Well, but that gets me back to is China, you know, they point finger for China being responsible for all this. I'm like, well, I have a hard time blaming China when it's in your own house. You know, China might be yeah. responsible for things, but we're responsible for our own behaviors. And until you take responsibility, yeah. you can't change things. But where does that leave China as a power broker in this whole COVID mess? Well, so that's an interesting point. And and I'll 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 do a little speculation sim- simply because I spent several years in China and I did so uh, during the accession of the World Trade Organization. So I had the opportunity to meet with many of the leadership of China. And what I will tell you is this. There's an existential fear in China that is absolutely overwhelming. That is that the one-child policy in China left what I refer to inelegantly as about 80 million evolutionary cul-de-sacs. And what do I mean by that? I mean men because disproportionately men were kept and girls were were either killed off or aborted. There's about 80 to 86 million men who will never have 
a reproductive life. They will never have a partner. They will never have children. And 86 million is a huge number. That's, you know, roughly, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% of the adult population of this country. If you think about that in terms of the both geopolitical, but also socioeconomic and social implications, think about the following. If you as a middle-aged man figure out that you're never going to have a partner, you're never going to have children, you're never going to have any opportunity for progeny of any kind, the only answer that a state-run enterprise can solve at a governmental level is addict these people to things, right? Get them to spend all of their wealth and all of their herited wealth, because remember, they won't have anybody to pass it on to. So they're going to blow it all in this generation. 86 million consumers who are men, who are middle-aged men who are going to do what? They're going to buy cars. They're going to buy watches. They're going to buy alcohol. They're going to buy digital entertainment, including massive amounts of digital pornography, all sorts of other things. That's what they're going to do. And if you're going to create an environment where you need to somehow mysteriously get that population to be pacified. Wouldn't it be interesting if you could participate in a global exercise called an alleged pandemic? Wouldn't it be interesting if you could get the Western companies that were doing business in your country to shut their operations during COVID, where you just went back in the factory and turned them on? And as I had forecast seven years before the event, China announced that it was inverting its economy from an export economy to a domestic consumption economy. Why? Because they need stuff. And they need stuff because if you have 86 million men who are not sitting on their couches with virtual reality headsets or addicted to their phones or addicted to their computers, gaming, porn, entertainment, whatever, if you don't have something that distracts 86 million men, you know what happens? You have a revolution. And that is the existential fear of the Communist Party, which is the reason why, you know, Premier for Life, Xi, who allegedly was going to, you know, be the ruler until he was put in a box, is suddenly looking like he's on the ropes because some of those 86 million men are starting to wake up and go, oh, hold on a minute. We are in the condition of life we're in because the Communist Party, and this is an awareness that only the fifth generation of the party seems to be starting to wake up to. This is the first time they're starting to go, maybe the party was the problem. And it turns out Xi is starting to look like maybe ruler for life may be a terrible idea because the life side of that may be compressed. And, and I've advised people many times to not overestimate what they think the power of the ascendancy of China to be, because the fact is that they've got 10 more years. And I would put a very, very high probability on massive, and I mean massive, social unrest, which actually doesn't allow China to ever have its moment as the sun that it wants to be rising from the east and being the place where the next dynasty arises. I don't think we're going to see a Chinese empire, and I don't think we're going to see a Chinese season on the global scale of political and geopolitical control. I think it's far more likely that China will self-destruct.
and it will self-destruct by its own making. Well, if they did that, I think what I've heard is that the women who weren't killed, who actually made it through birth and were raised, actually have a lot of value in that, you know, because a lot of men, I mean, they're, it actually helped the value of women long-term, but they also changed their policy so they don't do that anymore. Yeah, but But it's too late. Too late. Yeah. 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 Yeah, they just recent. I mean, in fact, the one child policy was just lifted a couple of years ago, and now they're trying to pay people to have more babies, but it's too late. This problem, the problem I'm talking about, you know, you you can't solve. This is an 86 million evolutionary cul-de-sac. They screwed up. Oh my gosh. It's the iceberg that takes down the Titanic. They mess with nature and that's what happens. Now, what do you think about Xi Jinping taking out some of his ministers around him well i think it's a pretty pretty clear sign that there's you know trouble brewing right if if you only have the extermination of opposition as your only tool you've already lost you've already lost that's what they're doing here yeah well that's exactly the point i mean look at look at what the biden administration is doing with the department of justice we we have the same thing happening here and that's why when people do the oh let's you know to your point earlier, which I think is a really important point and worth pointing out again, we can't throw rocks inside the glass house we're living in. And the glass house we're living in is we have a banana republic where we have a despotic and runaway Democratic Party that has decided that justice is no longer applicable to anybody except political opponents. And the fact of the matter is, you know, we we see that we're we're not going to have free and fair elections in 2024. There's no way to have free and fair elections in 2024. So the delusion that there's a democracy in a country where political opponents are the object of Department of Justice focus is absolutely nonsensical. And the fact of the matter is, that doesn't mean that I'm endorsing somebody or not endorsing somebody else. I'm simply saying there will be no free election in 2024. Uh, yeah, I think you're you're right. Unless we clean it up, which I haven't seen anything cleaned up. I said the same well, thing to General Valley. Have you seen anything? He goes, no, we haven't done yeah, anything. But, 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 but we can't. Here's the thing. We can't clean it up because to clean it up, the Constitution laid out for us a very clear pathway of how this organization is supposed to work. And it's supposed to work with a balance of power. But we do not have a judiciary that the public can access. That's right. Which means one of the legs of the stool is gone. That's right. We don't have a representational body in Congress because the legislature has decided to pick absolutely banal kind of fights where there is no reasonable mind anywhere in the legislature that's actually standing up for the people's interests. And we have a president who's not even a president. We have a president who can't muddle his way through a sentence without getting distracted by the butterfly in his imagination. So you can't actually say we have a functioning government whatsoever. And against the backdrop, we have a runaway Department of Justice and an entirely compromised court system that means that there's no justice, which means no matter how you do it, we're we're talking about an autopsy of a corpse. We're not talking about something you can bandage up and make it okay by 2024. Well, anybody who's tried to use this court system to make this right, all I mean, it they, everybody loses. Everyone is yeah. losing in this court system. To me, it tells you that these we took Google the court in the Ninth Circuit, and 
I am 100% convinced those judges were bought out because of the way yeah. that they that went down all the anomalies, everything that happened. That Ninth Circuit is 100% compromised and there's no other explanation. And I think that's what we're seeing everywhere. Yeah, and that's why I encourage people to realize that this is not, you know, it, Sarah, you could look at this and go, oh my gosh, all the institutions are failing. Or you could take a step back and say, well, were any of them really great before they were failing? And the answer is really no. I've encouraged people to look at the collapse of what I call this kind of despotic you know, trajectory as something that's actually quite positive. What we need to be doing right now is we need to be rec recognizing that like a number of patriots did in 1774, not in 1776, but in 1774, we the people need to start saying, there is a moment on the horizon where we need to do what the Constitution authorizes, which is when the government no longer serves the interests for which it was established, the people have the right to reestablish a government that works. And my point is really simple. I'm not calling for revolution. I'm calling for the constitutional transition of power from a system that is absolutely and unequivocally broken to something where we, the people, do what our own constitution instructs us to do, which is when it stops working, it's on us to build a thing that works. So rather than trying to fix what I call these corpse institutions, where we can do every forensic analysis we want and it's still dead in the end, we can't fix the courts. The judges are all paid off. We can't fix the legislature. They're doing nothing but fundraising from pharma to be elected. And then we wonder why we can't get justice with respect to what's happened in the last three years. We can't fix the executive because we can't even put an executive into office. <laughs> like, why are we talking about fixing something? Why don't we actually talk about going back to the Constitution and saying, hey, there was in the Constitution a contemplation that one day this system might break. And the Constitution laid out a program, things like the Convention of States, all sorts of things. There are things that we can do and that are well within the Constitution, well within the legal framework, and we can do it and we should be doing it. So where do you, what groups or what uh, uh, people are working on that that you think are really doing a good job and that we should get behind? Well, I, I just I just had a, a couple of days with my friend Tim Wilson down in North Carolina, and we we spoke about the the Convention of States idea. You know, we talked about the efforts that are underway to actually make that a reality. Um, I think we're I think Sarah, where we are is the best place in the universe right now. We're having this conversation, and and who are the people that are doing it? Well, guess what? You and me. That's who's doing it. It is the conversations that allow us to engage where we're thoughtful about what we're doing. We're thoughtful about what our objectives are. And what we're doing is saying that our time, our treasure, our resources, our creativity, everything needs to be aligned to saying it is now on our watch to form a more perfect union. Our founders gave us the roadmap that said how to do it. We don't have to go into a militant uprising. We don't have to reduce ourselves to the thuggery that the World Economic Forum and BLM and other organizations like to, to promote. We don't have to do any of that. We can have civilized discourse. We can have active disagreement. 
We can have, as I've had in the last 48 hours, conversations with people who across the political spectrum are as far varied as you can get. I just got done talking to a person who used to hang out with Clinton Global Initiative, who's now going, I want to work with you on how we move forward. And I talked to somebody who's part of the most conservative arm of CPAC about five minutes earlier, and they're like, I want to work with you on how we move forward. You know what that means? There is a path forward. But the path forward is conversations like this. We need to inform ourselves so that we're not reacting to the COVID trans alien agenda that is the distractions of the World Economic Forum and the distractions of the left. We we don't need to react to that. We need to realize what it is. It's marketing fodder for distraction. And That's what we true. do is we say, well, what do we need to do? We need to have a world in which we have an appropriate use and access program for resources. We have a country where fundamental liberty of the individual is absolutely and unequivocally defended. We want to make sure that the right of assembly, the right of belief, the right of religion, all of the things that are enshrined in all of the rights that we have are absolutely defended and protected. We need to have a judiciary that upholds the law and doesn't procedurally dismiss people based on their political party. We need to have the things that are all enshrined in our values, and we, the people, are responsible to do that. So this is kind of what I re like to refer to as this is the, the big kids table, right? We're, we're done with the little kids table. We're going up to the big kids table. And if we're smart, we'll ultimately sit around the adults table. Well, that's how a lot of us feel, is it just so these bratty little kids are controlling stuff. Some people yeah. that I talk to believe that there's no way we can do this without a civil war, that it will get violent. You think we can do this with dialogue. People who thinks, think that it will get violent are the ones who think that these people that are behind it won't let it go, won't let their power go because they're psychopaths and they don't care if they kill. And the only way we're going to take them down is if there's violence. You yeah, on well, the remember, other hand, remember the first shot literally was fired by Pfizer and Moderna. And we need to start using that language, right? The war started. The war has started. and But you believe we can do this through dialogue. There's no reason we have to get violent. Well, I, I genuinely think that if you look through human history, there is, I mean, go back to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and ask yourself, you know, and by the way, I, I encourage anybody who wants to think about building a new future, read the book of Nehemiah because it's a freaking amazing story. And it gives you a huge roadmap of how you do it right, which is you don't fight the incumbent power. What you do is you actually serve faithfully inside of systems that allow you to then at the right time access the resources which allow you to go rebuild the walls of your city and your temples. People forget that story. They think that they're their prophetic role is to stand on the outside with placards and posters and yell about how evil the other side is. Well, you know what? Never in human history has that achieved anything positive. Never. Not maybe. It never has. But what does work is actually recognizing that what we need is more of an Aikido approach, which is there is a lot of power. And there is a lot of influence and there is a lot of energy in the system. And our job is to get close enough to that power to bend its intentions, to move it to a different direction, to actually take the incumbency and use the inertia it has 
so that we're not having to do all the work and it collapses on itself. And let me point out a very interesting thing. I spoke in the parliament in May of 2023. That video went to billions of viewers around the world. Sarah, I don't have a marketing firm. I don't have a promotion agency. I don't have anything. And you know what? More people have heard my voice than have heard the voice of Klaus Schwab. Well, because you moved people with the truth, right? And it yes, really but this stuck. is the point. This mm -hmm. is our weapon if we choose to use it. If we choose to use it, civility, articulate distribution of not complex ideas, just simple ideas that just say, hey, this is the right thing to do. We have within our capabilities the power to do that. Now, do I believe that all of the despots will just tuck tail and run? No. Like every caged animal, I fully expect that the Klaus Schwabs and the Yuval Hararis of the world will bear their fangs and they'll go thrashing about and be rabid and, and, and bite a few people on the way out. There's no question. And so will there be moments of, of disturbance and violence? I am certain that that'll happen. But I remind people that's already happening. It's being done by doctors and lab coats. Right now, they are killing people, right? Right now. Yeah. That side is at war and it is killing people. Barack Obama and Anthony Fauci just recently did a promotional video saying that you should roll up your sleeves on your kids and under six years old and you should do that. That is murder. That is absolutely an act of war. And there's no question of this. They know there's myocarditis. They know there are clots. They're, they, they know there's cancer accelerators. It's their data now, not just ours. Everybody knows it and they're still pitching it. So is there a war going on? Yes. Are we still at a war? Yes. But do we have to re reduce ourselves to the lowest common denominator of behavior to affect change? And the answer to that is not only no, but not only did I have that speech in May, but two weeks ago I was in Strasbourg at the EU parliament delivering the death knell to the World Health Organization speech. And you know what? That one's now over several hundred million views. And what's happened after that? I got an invitation from the Bundestag in Germany to address the entirety of the German pol political system. Of all places on earth, my message, because I actually talked about war crimes and war crimes against humanity, landed in a place where the next thing I got was an invitation to the German Bundestag. Why am I telling you this? I'm saying that if we hold our ground, if we continue to share this message, we will allow the truth to prevail, and we are not going to have to be reduced to the inhumanity of the other side. Well, I hope so. I think it, it feels like after or at the end of World War II and the whole world right before the Nuremberg trial, I mean, that has to happen. We have to have yep. a day of reckoning. Yeah. And it, it, so now the European Union is more seeing this. They're not as, as tied in with England, are they? They're... Because no. England never joined the European well, Union. Well, and Brexit pissed off a lot of people. Let's remember that that the the little bit of the little bit of sympathy they used to have when Brexit happened, uh, you know, it's like an old girlfriend or boyfriend coming back and saying, "But can't we still just be friends?" Like, no, you can't. You're 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 an ex, and that's what's happening right now. So I think Europe is kind of going, eh. You know, you had your day. You could have been at least a date, but you're not. And now move on.
Okay, but now the European Union are still supporting the Ukraine war that is really a proxy war between the United States and Russia. And I'm sure England's behind there, you know, pulling their puppet strings, or at least the city of London. So where does the rest of the European Union fit when it comes well, to that? Yeah, remember that the European Union is not as much as they want to tell themselves this. They're not a single cloth. And there is no such thing as now the European Union. Suddenly, all the federal governments are back in their standard meetings and they're they're having their parliamentary activities and they're doing all kinds of other things. The European Union is already dead. The euro is functionally absolutely dead. Germany's economy is irretrievably dead because they decided to go with this nonsensical approach of reduction of you know energy and this and that and the other thing and all of a sudden they killed off their manufacturing industry and That's then they so wondered stupid. what happened to their economy the fact that the fact is that as goes germany so goes the european union and germany has fallen well, germany has completely fallen or they are what do you mean by fallen Give well us some, i mean they, i mean that if you go back to your analogy in history of the second world war when the when the German government at the end of the Second World War was asked, how is it that the Deutsche Mark would ever rise to a global standard again? The then finance minister said, by the full faith and confidence in German productivity. And it turns out that 10 years later, the Deutsche Mark was one of the strongest currencies on the planet. 10 years after the war. It's absolutely amazing. And a lot of people would say, well, that's the Marshall Plan and it's this, that and the other thing. No, it was actually German productivity and labor. And it turns out that German productivity and labor made the Deutsche Mark strong again. And it's a brilliant story of how you bring yourself back from the utter destruction of war. And in 10 years, you become a global player again. But let's think about the implications of that. Now, we don't have the full faith and confidence in German productivity. What do we have? We have a Germany that's overrun by careless migration policy, which has made the entirety of Germany turn into this extremely bizarre, multi-ethnic, multi-all kinds of things, and certainly multi-socioeconomic absolute mess. We have a productivity because of organized labor and because of the insane labor policies in Germany where people don't work anymore. I mean, my gosh, if you get somebody to work 25 hours in Germany right now, you're doing great. And they're not really working for the 25 hours. You look at every single thing that Germany did to build itself after the Second World War, and they are doing the exact opposite of all of it. So does Germany rise again? Not even a chance. Because Germany, because of its insane social policies, has decided that labor is, you know, the the favored, you know, electorate, that industry is the enemy. And lo and behold, when you decide to take the engine of an economy out from under an economy, you know what you got left? You get Nothing. a rusty old truck yeah. sitting in a field with flowers growing through it. And well, that's what Germany's become. Well, and that's what they're trying to do with this whole green energy and the, all yep. the electronic vehicles. They're killing off the the vehicle industry. I mean, there's a lot of things they're attacking. You don't, do you think it's just a byproduct of idiots doing it? Or do you think it's on purpose? They're trying to kill the vehicle market. Why, why is it that these London, you know, city of London people and the wall street people are behind purposely killing off our industries? The same reason that they did it when Westinghouse and Edison were fighting at the turn of the last century. 
If you can meter the flow of energy supply, you can control the movement and the behavior of a population. And petroleum is fundamentally democratic because you can put your gas in your car and you can drive off. Electricity is fundamentally socialist because the only way you can access electricity is if you play the game. You have a meter on your house, you pay for the utility, and you cannot take it with you. And people need to actually understand that this is not a war on carbon. This is a war on democracy. The fact that you can have your behavior controlled within a 200-mile range because your freaking Tesla can't make it further than that means that a 15-minute city suddenly becomes a very attractive option. But it's not attractive when you realize that in that little 15-minute radius, you will have all of your behavior monitored. You'll have all your consumption monitored. And if Hunger Games cities sound like a great idea, then go for it. But every electric vehicle that's ever been put on the road is about advancing socialism. And it's about advancing the limitation of the freedom of assembly, which is enshrined in our constitutional and Bill of Rights protections. The fact of the matter is, electricity was known to be that when it was chosen as the principal motive energy source at the turn of the last century. And we need to understand that that's the reason why, by the 1930s, we had a socialist democracy in the United States. Why did we have the FDIC? Why did we have Social Security? Why did we have Medicare and Medicaid? Why did we have the, the rise of organized labor? We had it because we were advancing a socialist view of democracy. And as much as people hate when I say that, the facts are, Roosevelt was every bit the socialist that every other communist leader was anywhere in the world. We don't like that, to say it, but it's that's true. true. That is true based on what he did. And then we also have a Federal Reserve that's not, we're not printing our own money. It's controlled no. by others. I mean, it's no. a big farce. So, okay. So where can people watch you and see you next? Are you, are you giving presentation? What are you doing? Yeah, I'm trying to do as many things face-to-face -face and in-person as possible. So I'm doing a lot of events. Um, I've I've been very fortunate to have in the last couple of months an enormous amount of events across Europe. I was in Austria, Germany, Switzerland, France, um, Denmark in the last in the last three weeks. Um, wow. Um, so uh, I'm trying to get face-to-face -face with people because I think these conversations are best had when you can sit down and after the presentation, you can have some dinner together, you can have a drink, you can hang out. You can have a wonderful time because that's where the human connections are fostered yes. and that's where genuine conversation advances. So I'm doing as much as I can to be with people. That's my primary objective. But the secondary thing is I have been allowed to once again, I think largely because I'm driving a lot of traffic, I've once again be, been able to uh, have an active Twitter account. So I, I'm up there at Dr. D. Martin World and there's a lot of stuff there. And then obviously at davidmartin.world and Kim and I still have all of our stuff at, at, you know, fully live. And so you can find us and, but the best place to be is wherever you are. I mean, it's, it's really about being together with people because we don't change this system digitally. We're going to change it in groups, getting together, spending time in each other's presence, coming up with good ideas, coming up with bad ideas, Having honest dialogue and debate and discussion and discourse, that's where we're going to make this thing happen. So are you going to be in the United States in, anytime soon where you're going to be speaking, where people, at least in that local area, can hear you? 
Um, I, I try to get all my events announced, uh, usually on my Twitter, or Facebook, so you can see me there. And um, yes, I will be. And as soon as I know, I'll let everybody know. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining. This has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Sarah, thanks for having me. It's lovely to see you again. And I'll uh, pass along to Dave that we finally got connected again. Well, that's great. Tell him I said hi. Okay. Take care.